All right. Hey, good morning, everybody. Would you turn with me to John chapter 13, to John's gospel chapter 13? Uh, If you need a Bible or if you would like a journal so you can follow along with us back here on our resource table, we have a number of those. You're welcome to hop up and grab one or two. Um, And if you don't have one at all, please keep it and let it be our gift to you today. We're going to be wrapping up John chapter 13 this morning. And as you will see, it is a strangely appropriate text for today. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke, One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast so that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. The word of the Lord. So I said it seems strangely appropriate that we would be in this text today on the day before Halloween. Uh, that we would just so happen to be in this passage where we are encountering for the first time in John's gospel, the devil. Uh, The devil, or Satan, as he is often called, is a fascinating figure, which may sound like a strange thing to say, but he's fascinating because for most of us, our ideas or mental images about who he is have perhaps been more shaped by popular culture and popular media than by scripture itself. In fact, there is a whole world of what I would call Christian mythology surrounding the devil and the forces of evil that is far more rooted in the imagination than it is in the pages of the Bible. That's not to say the devil isn't real. 
uh, or something like that. No, Scripture clearly paints that there is an adversary to God, but the reality is that we don't know a whole lot about him. And when it comes to the devil in Scripture, many of us have a lot of misconceptions. And I'll give you a few, just real quick. Uh, First of all, Satan is not a proper name in Hebrew and Greek. Rather, it's a word that means adversary, or sometimes you'll see it translated as accuser. In Old Testament Hebrew especially, it is always coupled with an article, which is the Hebrew article ha, which means the. So in the Old Testament, he is always the Satan, the Satan, or the adversary. I don't think we are meant to take that as his name, as like some kind of proper name for him. And you may go, well, yeah, because his name is Lucifer, right? Well, not so fast. The Bible never explicitly says that the name of the adversary is Lucifer. That really comes to us more from the British author John Milton in his famous epic poem, Paradise Lost, uh, where he couples those two things together. The word Lucifer, to my knowledge, is only used once in the Old Testament, and it's in Isaiah chapter 14 in a prophecy about Babylon. And then later in Luke, Luke's gospel, in chapter 10 of Luke's gospel, Jesus does not use the word Lucifer, but he uses some of the same language for Satan that is used for this Lucifer figure in Isaiah 14. Um, And so that's why those two things get put together. Whether or not that's Jesus's intention is not entirely clear, but there are some similarities there. Um, Also, much like with the word Satan, scholars are divided on whether or not the word Lucifer is even a proper name or not, or if it should simply be rendered literally as morning star. Even more confusing, Jesus is called the morning star in Revelation 22. So I don't know what to do with all that. Uh, Another thing, the Bible never indicates to us that the devil is omnipresent and meaning everywhere all the time. And we should be very careful in like ascribing the characteristics of God to the adversary uh, or to the devil. Um, He is not everywhere all the time, and he is a created being. And and so with that in mind, Satan is not God's evil peer. It's tempting to view this as a coin, and on one side of the coin you have God and goodness, and on the other side of the coin you have Satan and evil. But that elevates him to a position that he simply does not have. He is not... God's wicked stepbrother, right? He is, just like us, a created being. Uh, Just as we have the potential for sin and rebellion, so does he, and so has he rebelled. And I think the reality, based on that, the reality is we actually have way more in common with him than we do with God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. In fact, I would go so far as to say that when we sin, most often... It is not because of the direct influence of Satan in our lives, but rather because of our own rebellious and sinful hearts. Now, this is the first time we meet the devil in an obvious way here in John, but Jesus did mention him once before back in John chapter 8, 
verse 44. And I just want to reread this to us so we're reminded. In John 8, Jesus is addressing a crowd. And here's what he told the crowd in 844. He said, you are of your father, the devil, right? He tells this crowd of people, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, Jesus says, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So as Jesus is addressing this group, this is what he says about Satan. Now, one of the things to notice there, and we'll we'll circle back around to this idea in a few moments, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, but then he qualifies that statement. This crowd is not necessarily controlled by the devil. What he says is your will, your will is to do your father's desires. So that's what Jesus means when he says you are of the devil. He means the will that the group of people has is the same as the will of Satan. So Jesus calls him a murderer. He calls him the father of lies. Nothing he says can be believed. Jesus says his very character is to be untrue because there is no truth in him. Okay, so with all those things in mind, let's go to our text today. John 13. The scene we come upon today is John's account of the Last Supper. Right after the foot washing that we saw last week in the upper room, there's no break here. We're just continuing the same evening, the same story. Right after that happens, we find the establishment of the Eucharist or Holy Communion. But notice the focus here really is not on the meal, is it? Right? You don't get really any of Jesus's words about the bread and the wine. You don't get Jesus talking about the new covenant here in the way that you do in some of the other synoptic gospels. You don't get him saying, do this in remembrance of me. No, instead, the focus truly seems to be on Judas. And as we've said before throughout this study, John has two intentions in writing this gospel. One, he makes the case that he is writing primarily to non-believers. So this gospel has not been written necessarily to the church directly or for the edification of people who are already believers, but instead he's trying to write from this sort of evangelistic standpoint. Also, it seems clear that John is probably the last gospel to be written. So more than likely, he has some knowledge of Matthew, Mark, and possibly Luke as well. He has some knowledge of the synoptic gospels and is very intentionally maybe trying to tell stories that were not told in the synoptics or perhaps fill in gaps that were not um, complete in the synoptic gospels. And so that's why John's gospel, I think, is so different from the other three. Uh, I need to mention here also, like, as, as the focus doesn't seem to be on the supper and it does seem to be more on Judas, I, I need to mention that as a part of last week's text, we learned something important about Judas. And if you'll look back, this is in verse 2 of chapter 13. As this evening was beginning, before Jesus uh, even washed their feet, it says, during supper... When the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. 
So John's beginning this little section by telling us that already in the heart of Judas, the devil has inserted this idea of betraying Jesus. So I think we see a bit of a progression here. This doesn't all begin with betrayal. Like Judas doesn't somehow come out of nowhere and betray Jesus. It begins with an idea. It begins with a thought. It begins with something, perhaps an invasive idea or an invasive thought, but it begins with something in the heart. And what John says is that the idea originated with diabolos or the slanderer. That's the word that gets translated as devil, diablos. This is the word where we get our English word diabolical. Um, Look at verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, We'll hear that phrase over and over again as we move forward, but it's really the first time we've heard a particular disciple referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. Uh, As you may be aware, most people think that this is John himself, the writer of this gospel, who is being referred to here. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to, to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking, So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Um, So very famous scene here, particularly if you consider Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper painting. Right next to Jesus in that painting is uh, who is thought to be John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. And if you've noticed in that painting, uh, he's leaning up against Jesus as if asking, you know, who is it? And, and, and this is so fascinating to me. Um, there's this moment here that most of the Gospels tell us about. This moment where Jesus says, somebody's going to betray me. And in some form or fashion, he points out to the other disciples who it is going to be. And if Jesus is anything, he's consistent. Uh, just as he washed the feet of Judas uh, in last week's text, so today he offers bread and wine to Judas as well. But also, this fulfills prophecy. If you look back at verse 18 here in chapter 13, we learned last week it's the scripture that must be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Jesus is quoting a line here from Psalm 41. David's son Absalom Uh, has rebelled against David, betrayed David, uh, and uh, rebelled against him. Uh, And and so that's, that's maybe what Psalm 41 is about. But Jesus is using this here to speak of his own betrayal. What does it mean that his heel has been lifted? Uh, That's kind of an interesting uh, phraseology in the Greek. It's clear that it has a negative connotation, either because someone is like raising their heel to like smash down or stomp or crush 
something under their foot. Um, another possible explanation here is the heel is raised because it's fleeing, like it's, it's walking away or betraying someone else. Um, but either way, this prophecy is like literally being fulfilled in Jesus sharing his bread with Judas at this moment. Either way, no matter what that means, Jesus's hands uh, take the bread, dip it in the wine, hand it to Judas. And in this very literal way, we see this coming to fruition. And then something very, very strange happens. Remember, Diablos has already put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. But then look at verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, what in the world is going on here? Satan entered into him. What does that mean? Just like there is a lot of speculation about the devil and demons and the spiritual realm There's also a great deal of speculation about Judas. It's possible even uh, you have had questions about Judas and the role that Judas plays in this whole story. What about him? Uh, Is he just a pawn in all of this? What happens to him afterwards? Um, You know, what's interesting is that the Bible really doesn't tell us a whole lot about Judas. We don't know much of his backstory. Uh, We don't see Jesus calling him to be his disciple, even though I I think it's clear that Jesus had done that. He's not just a hanger on. Um, We do have one little tidbit, though, about Judas that John told us. And he told us this in the last chapter, in chapter 12. We had, if you remember, Jesus resurrected Lazarus from the tomb. And then there is this dinner that takes place at the home of Lazarus's sisters, Mary and Martha. And you have the story of Mary falling at the feet of Jesus and anointing him with perfume. But here's what John said back in chapter 12. This is starting in verse 3. It says, The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. I think this is actually a really important piece of information for reasons I'll explain more in just a moment. But all that to say, what little we know about Judas is not positive. It's not redeeming. But now, even though he had betrayal in his heart already, even though he was a thief who regularly stole money, now Satan enters into him. You might be inclined to think that this is maybe yet another turn of phrase, meaning that, well, he just resolved to do evil at this point. But the word that gets translated as entered is used a ton here in John's gospel, and it's always uh, describing people physically going into a place, or it's describing the idea of physically going into a place, like like literally entering into a space. Uh, I'll give you two examples of how it's used. Uh, One is way back, I think, in chapter 3, where Jesus meets with Nicodemus at night. And Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, but how can I enter back into my mother? 
right? So he's thinking in very literal terms, like how in the world can I go back in to my mother? So that same word is used there. Uh, It also gets used when Jesus is before Pontius Pilate. At one point, Pilate leaves and deliberates and then enters back in before uh, the presence of Jesus. So most of the time when John's using this, he's not speaking figuratively at all. It's, it's like literal terms that are being used here. So when John says that Satan entered into Judas, I think he means Satan literally entered into him. But what some people immediately jump to there, and I get this, is to say that Judas was possessed by Satan or controlled by Satan. In other words, Judas ceases to be Judas and instead is now basically the devil in human form. And I'm uncomfortable with that idea. I I don't actually think that that's what's going on here. And I want to give you a few reasons why. First of all, to my knowledge, and I may be wrong about this, but to my knowledge, that does not happen anywhere in the Bible. That, that, that literally Satan himself enters into and fully possesses and controls a human being, effectively turning them into a puppet. And I'm not sure even if that idea itself isn't something that comes to us more from movies than from Scripture. Now, now there is certainly demon possession that we see in the New Testament. But in virtually all of those instances, the person presents as being either mentally ill or struggling with something like epilepsy. It does not seem to be the same thing. Uh, It's not the case at all with Judas. From here on out, he seems to be in his right mind. He will leave the supper. He will go confer with the Jewish leaders. They're going to put together their scheme. Judas is going to return to Jesus and carry out the plan perfectly. He certainly seems to have his wits about him. And in no way does his uh, kind of uh, the thing he's modeling at this point look like what would be called demon possession in other parts of the Gospels. Secondly, very similar language is used in the case of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. If you're not familiar with that story, just real quick, Ananias and Sapphira are two members of the early church. And at that point in time, because there were a lot of people who had need, um, the church was pooling their resources so as to provide for everybody. Ananias and Sapphira sold a piece of property, but then lied to the apostles about the amount that they had earned, and they only gave a portion of it while saying that they were giving the whole amount, which was not true. And, and here's what happens in that moment in Acts 5. Peter, the apostle Peter, says to Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. So you have very similar language there. But Ananias is held accountable for his actions. They don't chalk it up to satanic possession or something. Rather, later in uh, verse 4, Peter says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. So in this situation, Satan has filled Ananias' heart, yet Ananias has also contrived the deed in his heart and is subsequently held responsible 
for it. So I don't think Scripture ever paints Judas as like a victim of satanic possession who was not in control of his actions, but rather as a willing accomplice who goes along with what Satan had already put into his heart. Remember what Jesus said to the crowd? You are of your father, the devil. Why? Because your will is to do his will, right? So I think a very similar thing is going on here. One author says it's more like collusion than possession. A third reason I'm uncomfortable with the idea of satanic possession in this instance is because exactly the same language, that language of entering in, exactly the same language is used for the Holy Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit enters into the lives of believers and, in fact, indwells the lives of believers. And yet, the Holy Spirit does not possess us in the sense of controlling us or turning us into puppets. We are still responsible for our actions, even if the Spirit of God is in us. We still must seek to submit to the Spirit or listen to the Spirit. And as I think is evidence in the case of Ananias, just because the Holy Spirit is in us doesn't mean that Satan or our own sinful flesh can't devise sinful plans in our heart. What is stopping the father of lies, from sowing seeds of untruth into your heart and my heart as well. Right? With Ananias and Sapphira and with Judas, like there's this moment in which the idea gets inserted into the heart. That's back in verse 2 here in chapter 13. Then there is the moment of decision to go along with the idea that's already there. I think that this is what is meant ultimately by Satan entered into him. It's the moment where Judas says, I'm doing this thing. Now, here's my question. What's stopping that same kind of thing from happening to you and me? Right? What's stopping those same kind of untruths entering into our heart and taking root? Well, it's not enough to say, well, I'm a Christian. So was Ananias. Yet Peter told him, you have lied to the Holy Spirit. So I think there are potentially many answers to that question, how we guard against the reality of sin and the schemes of the enemy. Uh, I would highly recommend, by the way, John Mark Comer's book, Live No Lies. We read that book earlier this year as a church. Uh, but if you haven't read it yet, pick it up. It's, it's really fantastic. It deals with this subject matter uh, specifically. Live No Lies is what's that, what that book is called. Um, I found it to be very helpful. I want to focus in, though, on one idea today that seems to relate directly to Judas, and it's this. Judas did not become a betrayer of Christ overnight. Rather, his betrayal was the result of a lifestyle that regularly said yes to sin. And to one sin in particular. Right? We all have things we struggle with. Uh, We all have issues in our lives. More than likely for you, there is like a top tier of sin issues that you most regularly struggle with or wrestle with. Uh, The things that are always popping up for you, the things that are continual potholes in your life. And for Judas, it seems to be greed. It is the pursuit of money. And here's what we miss about Judas. He didn't betray Jesus because he didn't think he was the Messiah. He didn't betray Jesus because uh, he didn't like his teaching or his ideas. He didn't betray Jesus because he thought that Jesus didn't really love him. Scripture never says any of those things. What does Scripture say? 
It tells us Judas got paid. The guy who regularly helps himself to the money bag is the one who devises a scheme to literally sell Jesus out. And what's even more sad, it wasn't that much money. It really wasn't. Probably only a couple of hundred dollars. So what you nurture within you is what will grow. What you give space to within you will take up that space. There is a very short gap between entertaining something in your heart and doing it. Psychologists know that this is the case with things like suicide. Like very few people just suddenly commit suicide out of nowhere. Rather, it springs from prolonged ideation. This is often the case with things like adultery as well. They don't just happen. It comes from a heart that is already fantasizing or ideating on the potential. So what do we do? Here's some frank advice from James in his epistle. What he says in chapter four, starting in verse seven, is Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Resist the slanderer, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. He's describing there a heart that is nurturing the spirit, giving space to God's voice, ideating on the things of Christ. And this has to become our way of life. Guys, these things begin in the heart. At least that seems to be the case here. Right? Things get planted in there. We give them space. We water them. We entertain them. Oh, and surprise, surprise, they wind up manifesting. What James says is purify your hearts. I think Paul's getting at the same kind of thing when he talks about our minds being reformed. It's like, what is it that your like internal energy is going towards? What is it that you're focusing on? What is it that occupies this space in your life? This has to become our way of life. This, this lifestyle that is increasingly seeking to resist what is being put into our heart or what we are devising in our heart and turn our attention to the cross that we would seek to purify our hearts and put sin to death and and weep over our own sin, like really, truly be convicted and repent. Jesus, in verse 34, tells his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Is that really a new commandment? I think here's what he's getting at, that you love one another. Look, he goes on, he says, just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Remember, this is coming on the heels of the foot washing. Now also on the heels of the supper where Jesus has told them, this is my body, this is my blood. This is this new covenant that's being established in my blood. And he told them after he washed their feet, he said, I've given you a model to follow. 
that you should do exactly what I have done to you, that you should do this for each other, that the thing that you would be known for as my disciples, as my followers, is the way you love and care for each other. And I think this command sums up everything that Jesus has been pointing towards in his actions throughout this entire evening, that the disciples love one another just as Jesus has loved them. And how has Jesus loved them? Well, he's, he's now given them like this taste of what is about to happen. He's telling them, I must die. I must be betrayed. Ultimately, I am going all the way to death because of my great love for you. And so should you be willing to live in this sacrifice official way for each other. That this should be the true calling card of actual disciples of Christ, that within the Christian community, that there should be this flagrant and obvious love, not scandal, not hurt, not, um, not harsh words, not people who are seeking uh, to lord power over other people. Man, it's so sad to me when I encounter people who have been hurt by the church, and I've experienced some hard things in the church in my life, believe me, um, many of us have. Um, We are still sinners. We are still people in need of a savior. We are not perfect. But man, if we are not striving in the way that James talked about to follow Jesus, to truly purify our hearts, to truly set our minds on him, then you better believe we're going to cultivate environments where those things are more likely to happen. And here's the deal. It's the responsibility of all of us to create a community, not where, not where there's no potential ever for somebody to get hurt, but a community where hopefully it's very unlikely that something like that's going to happen because we're all coming together and seeking to live sacrificially towards each other. Does that make sense? That's not just the job of leaders. I think it's the job of all followers of Jesus. And it's not just leaders who are to blame. In the church today. It's not just toxic leadership and bad work environments and all that kind of stuff, even though that's a huge factor. It is the responsibility of everybody in the church today and in the future. We must love each other as Christ has loved us, which is in this self-sacrificing way. That really is the antidote to all of this. And I think the idea is that rather than falling in love with money or sex or power or safety, that we would so fall in love with Jesus that the thing we most want in our lives is to be like him. But that will never happen if the space in your heart is given over to the cultivation of greed or the cultivation of lust or anger or envy or retribution and on and on and on and on. So... Let me leave us with a little twist ending here that we will come back to in a few weeks. The very end of this, verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Remember, Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't come. Peter says, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Here's what we forget. Jesus doesn't just have one betrayer. He has two, Judas and Peter, but with two very different outcomes. Why and how are Judas and Peter different? Great question. Stay tuned. We'll get back to that in a few weeks. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, we give you praise and honor and glory in the midst of a subject uh, that can be dark and difficult. 
Uh, and something that I confess I don't understand fully. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would give your grace to help us uh, receive your word this morning and to put it into practice in our lives, Father. Would you give us insight in our own lives to uh, recognize uh, the particular sins that uh, most trip us up, the things that we are most likely to give space uh, in our heart and in our minds to. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to put those things to death, that we would seek to be a people who listen and obey, that we would be a people who seek to truly repent and believe. And God, that you would continually be forming us into the image of Christ, continually sanctifying us uh, so that we might love each other in the way that you've called us to. And I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.